0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to
1: the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest,
2: and I'm Peter Tertzakian. So today we are going to talk about one of the stories that's in my energy file collection: the long way around.
1: Yeah, and you know, last summer, we actually had a new story that you had put out about Mm -hmm. the McLaughlin Carriage Company, and we got really great feedback on that. So we want to uh, have a little introduction before we get into the story today to talk a little bit about the story and and why you chose it. But just for background, maybe tell us just very quickly what it's about.
2: Yeah, The Long Way Around is one of 10 stories that's in my short stories book, The Investor Visit, and it's the one that is about energy security, which is also topical today. It's about energy security in 1973 when the supply of oil from the Middle East was curtailed, causing shortages in the West, basically the Arabingo oil embargo. And it's because we are not energy secure in this country, Canada, we don't have central Canada getting its oil from the West other than a very small fraction. Most of it comes from the United States today, and historically it's come from abroad by tanker into ports of Montreal and the East Coast. So what happens when you have a real oil shortage is that countries start hoarding, which is what happened. And so every country for themselves. Canada, which notionally is self-sufficient in oil because we produce more than we use. We export most of our oil, even back then. Basically, we shipped oil from Alberta through the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was active back then. We hired some Greek oil tankers, which took The oil from Vancouver all the way down the west coast of the United States and Mexico through the Panama Canal all the way up around Florida, all the way into the east coast to be delivered to central Canada. I mean, it just seems really absurd, right? Which is why it's called the long way around. And so the story is the story of the sea captain fictionalized that is carrying the oil in the tanker the long way around, but it has definite lessons for today.
1: I think people are always curious, like, how did you find this story?
2: Well, actually, I was reading through old newspapers when I was thinking about energy security in the 1970s. And of course, I, when I wrote my first book, A Thousand Barrels a Second, which was very much about how we respond to energy price shocks and energy security issues, that's where I found it. And so it stuck in my mind, the story, basically, and how absurd it is that a country that is so rich in its own resources does not have full energy security within itself. And it has to resort to these sort of extreme measures to be able to provide for its own people a vital commodity during times of crisis.
1: Okay, well, here's a question. Do you think we need a strategic reserve now? I mean, we might have back then, but things have really changed, right? With Mm -hmm. the growth of U.S. production, we are now much less dependent on offshore crude oil in our eastern markets. For example... In 2010, over 800,000 barrels a day of crude oil was imported from offshore, and today offshore is so small. The 2021 average numbers were 140,000 barrels a day, and that's because we're getting a whole bunch from the United States now, mm-hmm. and we're also getting more from Canada. As, as Western Canadian production has grown, there's been some changes to the pipeline, so there's more Canadian oil getting in. And we're also talking about moving away from oil in the future. So do we need it now, do you think?
2: Well, we're moving away from... Let's work backwards. We're moving away from oil, but it's going to take decades. Central Canada is going to need oil, even if not for combustion and cars for other industrial purposes. So that's point number one. Point number two, yes, there's been a major shift towards U.S. oil being imported versus, say, Saudi oil or Nigerian oil. And that's good to the extent that you don't have a crisis because it's human behavior, whether it's energy or, as we saw with vaccines that when there's a crisis, countries start to hoard. So we have no idea how a major supplier to Canada, friendly as they are today, is going to respond if or when there is a crisis. So, you know, we are very dependent upon the United States and still the bulk of the oil that is consumed by central Canada still transits through the United States or originates in the United States. And, you know, we've seen... It was still unresolved, it's just gone quiet a little bit for now, the whole Line 5 issue through Michigan.
1: Right, yeah. No, you're right. And and if that were to get cut off, well, we got yeah. a big problem. So, okay, well, hey, let's talk about one more topic around this. Energy East, remember that? That was a pipeline project that was proposed to move more Canadian crude to the east. Now, to me, that might make more sense than building a bunch of tanks. That's one option, build a bunch of tanks, a strategic oh, oil reserves mean, like, strategic like the Americans reserve. have. Right, yeah. Yeah. But we could just create a conduit that's on Canadian soil yeah. that gets to the east. And by the way, my summer reading project has been to read The Last Spike, which was mm, talking Pierre about Burton. the importance yeah. of having a Canadian railway. You know, it was much cheaper to go through the US, yes. and there was a lot of debate around that, and oh, it was sure. very difficult to build. And I, you know, I will come back to that. There's a lot of learnings from reading that book. We'll come back to that. But this is to the same point. You know, Instead of having these tanks in eastern Canada, we could just build our own pipeline on our own soil so we can control it. But as you know, that project was cancelled. It was supposed to be something like a $15 billion pipeline.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: in 2017, it was cancelled. Now, with what's going on in Europe, there has been some calls to get that project going again. Do you think it makes sense from an energy security perspective and to help Western energy security like Europe to rethink about that pipeline?
2: Well, I do if it's done quickly and expeditiously. If it's going to take 10 to 15 years to permit and build, no, forget it. Like, it's, it's not worth it. These issues will be resolved one way or another, hopefully, <laughs> by that time frame. By the way, I just actually get back to your last spike and the importance of the railway going through Canada. The other big debate was a natural gas mainline, okay, not right. oil. Yeah, And that was also initially proposed to go through the United States because it was shorter, but it was decided it should go through Canada to maintain our energy sovereignty of the natural gas. If you want my prediction of what could happen, actually, is that the natural gas mainline will be uprated, potentially expanded to carry more natural gas because the Europeans are wanting more LNG. It can be done quickly. If the regulatory framework is put in place to expedite these things to get permitting, whether it's oil or for gas. But if, you know, if it's going to take 15 years, like 10, 15 years, forget it. It's got to be done with conviction. And, you know, they can do it in China. They can do it in all sorts of other countries in a couple of years, so if we put our minds to it, yes, we can do it. But I I don't know. I I don't sense that there's a lot of conviction.
1: Right. Hey, uh, just as a side note, Energy East actually planned to reuse some— there are some natural gas pipelines that aren't being used today in that main line. That's on Canadian soil, which was a very smart move to make back in those days. And that pipeline was going to reuse some of the unused pipes. or yeah, you know, yeah. So there, there maybe is a way to do it more quickly right. because there's existing infrastructure.
2: Yeah, it's not the natural gas mainline. It's actually plural because there are several pipelines in the trench and some of them aren't being used.
1: And what about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve?
2: We don't have a Strategic Petroleum in this country. Why not? Because the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was implemented in all of the International Energy Agency participant countries. Following the oil price shocks, the only two countries that did not do it were Norway and Canada because of the belief that we were self-sufficient. I don't know, there isn't a lot of history documents, primary sources that I've found on why we didn't do it, but today, basically, there is no plan B if there is another oil crisis and if the United States basically says, sorry, we need all the oil for ourselves, none for you, Canada, then we're back to the same story that is in the long way around.
1: And with that, we'll turn to the story, and we hope that uh, you enjoyed this discussion and you enjoyed the story.
2: Hello, I'm Peter Turzakian. The story you're about to hear is from Energy File, a project I'm really excited to share with you. Part museum, part library, and part business school. It's where energy stories from the past open our minds to the present and help us plan for the future. Enjoy.
0: Long Way Around by Peter Turzakian. This is a story about energy security. It's about what happens when the amenities a nation depends on are abruptly threatened or cut off altogether. If you lived through the 1970s like I did, you probably know what I'm referring to. Sudden gasoline shortages and panic at the pumps framed against the never-ending geopolitics of the Middle East. In short, a fast-breaking situation when our taken-for-granted energy supplies became scarce and uncertain. Yes, 45 years after the Arab oil embargo, I'm reminiscing about energy shortages. My musings are prompted while standing on the north shore of the Burrard Inlet in beautiful Vancouver, Canada. Across the inlet are the loading docks at the end of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, where the oil tanker Aristocles awaits. It's summer 2018. I've come here because it's the day the Canadian government nationalized the 65-year-old pipeline. And although prickly environmental issues primarily drove the decision to bring the pipeline into public ownership, a more interesting story echoes through this steel tube about how society prioritizes security in the energy choices it makes. As its name implies, the Trans Mountain Pipeline brings oil to this tidewater by crossing two Canadian mountain ranges, the Rockies and the Cascades. It's a 1,000-kilometer westward journey from Alberta's prolific oil fields to British Columbia's coast, where I'm standing. As I ponder the massive vessel across from me, my imagination wanders back to November 1973 and what must have been a similar scene. The Kimon, a Greek tanker, was moored at the same spot I'm looking at now. The well-traveled ship's captain, I'll call him Nick, had docked uneventfully. Special loading arms that looked like giant kinked drinking straws were filling the kimon from storage tanks on shore. The reservoirs were presumably well stocked, having been topped up with crude oil flowing in from the pipeline. Meanwhile, Captain Nick was on the bridge, planning his ship's 14,000 kilometer route, a distance greater than a third of the way around Earth. Fidgeting with his curly white mustache, He looked up at Alex, his first mate, and delivered his assessment.
3: We'll be at sea for three weeks. It's a long way, sir, but we're close to land for most of it. It should be a calm journey.
0: Looking over the maps, Alex followed Nick's carefully ruled navigation lines. They would route through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, out to the eastern edges of the Pacific Ocean, sailing south to the Panama Canal, then back up through the Gulf of Mexico and along the Atlantic coast.
3: Hell of a long way, for what could have been a direct overland haul. At least it keeps us working, Captain.
0: Nick leaned over his maps, tracing a finger along their final destination, the St. Lawrence Seaway.
3: Yep, that's where we end up. Montreal, right back in Canada. Only on the other side.
0: As a Greek national, Nick may not have fully appreciated the importance of his journey. But I can tell you that the Kimon's voyage was urgent. Eastern Canada needed fuel from Western Canada's oil fields as soon as possible. A month prior, Arab countries had united to express their anger at the Western world. Unhappy with supporters of Israel in the Yom Kippur War, oil-rich countries like Saudi Arabia, Syria, Egypt, and Libya turned the valves down on Canada, the United States, several European countries, and Japan. The restrictions were tight enough to cause energy havoc and anxiety was radiating around the world. Oil flows were being choked off and Western fuel supplies were running short. Hostage to the geopolitics and their dependency on their angry oil suppliers, the sanctioned countries had to fend for themselves. The price of oil soared. National hoarding of petroleum products took hold. Each country had to secure its own alternative sources of the fuel that was needed for turning wheels on every axle of the economy. International relations were cold. So was the weather. In the Northern Hemisphere, where most of the target countries were located, winter was setting in and fuel for heating homes, generating electricity, and gassing up the family Buick was getting tight. The shortages of oil were forcing countries to take extreme action. That's why the Kimon's journey was so absurd, yet so urgent. Although the distance between Vancouver and Montreal is only about 3600 kilometers as the crow flies, Canada lacked the means to transport the oil directly via land. The sole West-East oil pipeline at the time was the Interprovincial Pipeline System. But it only went about halfway to Sarnia, Ontario, and its capacity was limited. So the Kemon was set to embark on a trip four times longer than it needed to be to deliver a couple hundred thousand barrels of oil back to the country it came from. My mind returned to the bridge of the Kimon.
3: This oil's worth a lot of money now. I heard the price jumped over $4 a barrel yesterday.
0: That means... Uh, Alex did some quick math. It's worth almost a million dollars. Nick nodded, but his mind was elsewhere. The Kimon's crew appreciated the value of their ship's cargo, but as international sailors on a Greek-registered vessel, they were indifferent to Canadian energy issues. Their job was to get the cargo from point A to point B. How is it
3: that a country so rich in oil is not self-sufficient in this stuff from coast to coast? Don't know. I'm sure our fellow countryman Aristotle would have had something to say about the matter. When he coined Energia, he used it in the sense of being at work. Canada's great energy supplies are hardly working for it
0: now. Philosophy aside, Nick was just happy that Canada's unfortunate situation was contributing to his livelihood. In truth, Canada once tried to become self-sufficient in oil from west to east. But the politics were contentious, so a Royal Commission on Energy was dispatched to study the matter. in 1959. Its report rejected building an Edmonton to Montreal pipeline. The reason? In large part because overseas oil, much of it from sanctioning producers like Saudi Arabia, Libya, and Iraq, was deemed plentiful. Buying from foreign sources was cheaper than laying a metal pipe across a few thousand kilometers of prairie, forests, and granitic rocks. Basically, cheap oil from other countries trumped the hassle and incremental cost of securing domestic oil. An hour passed on the Kimon's bridge. Just as Nick was finishing his paperwork, Costas, the communications officer, delivered a note.
3: Telegram, sir.
0: He knew the news wasn't good. Reading the message, Nick twisted his mustache in irritation.
3: Delivery to Montreal not possible. Stop. Reroute to Portland, Maine, USA. Stop. This is crazy. I was assured these government types were going to set aside their trade protection rules in time of national
0: crisis. The telegram went on to advise the Kimon that it would not be able to unload its cargo in any other Canadian port. Cabotage rules, prohibiting foreign-owned ships from hauling cargo between two domestic ports, would not be waived, not even in the midst of geopolitical crisis. Instead of a direct sea voyage, Alberta's oil would have to be unloaded in the nearest American port and flow to Montreal via an American pipeline.
3: Alex, give me the East Coast maps of the United States. Change of plans. We're heading to Maine.
0: Records show the Kimon and its 200,000 barrels of oil arrived in Maine just before Christmas 1973. But there was no time to celebrate. Due to the escalating sanctions, The tanker had to return to Vancouver as soon as it finished unloading. More Alberta oil awaited. In December alone, the Kimon and seven other tankers, all foreign-owned, transported 1.5 million barrels of oil from Vancouver through the Panama Canal to the northeastern United States, where a pipeline awaited. Their circuitous journeys helped mitigate Canada's energy crisis, though with anxiety and at tremendous cost. I take photos of the dock, turn around, and walk back to my car, as perplexed as Captain Nick. 45 years after his voyage, Canada would still be in the same insecure situation should another energy crisis hit. The events leading up to the 2018 Act of Parliament that nationalized the Trans Mountain Pipeline were contentious. But the reasons can be distilled down to intense public debates about environment and safety Versus economy and prosperity, energy security was a forgotten memory. Pipeline debates in Canada are nothing new, nor are the reasons behind them. Political polarizers from past decades include the Trans Canada Mainline, the previously mentioned Edmonton Montreal pipeline, the Mackenzie Valley pipeline, Northern Gateway, Energy East, Keystone XL, and the proposed expansion of the same Trans Mountain pipeline from which Nick loaded his ship. In many ways, Canada is a laboratory that has conducted economic experiments on trade-offs in its energy supplies. Yet what I've gleaned from my reviews is that none of those experiments have articulated energy security as a primary objective. Consequently, this country's energy needs are no less vulnerable to geopolitical forces than they were decades ago. That's not an indictment. It's an observation about priorities. There's a recurrent theme in the stories I tell. People want their energy to be cheap, clean, safe and secure. In developed countries, that want has become an entitlement. Of course, we'd all like free, completely safe and secure energy that has zero environmental impact. Yet we don't live in a utopia. So compromises must be made based on social circumstances. Reflecting on Canada's pipeline debates, I sense that since World War II, The urgency of energy security in the Western world has gradually lost rank relative to the cheap, clean, safe trifecta. Captain Nick's story is important because energy security is a difficult dimension to value in the present. As long as electricity is always ready at the flick of a switch, and the service station always has a nozzle to fill their car, it's not something consumers think about. Skimping on energy security is like neglecting house insurance. We don't think much about it until somebody robs our home. Then it's too late. As I get in my car, I take for granted that the engine will start, and I'll get to my destination without having to worry about where my next tank will come from. So too will the billion-plus people who drive oil-dependent cars in this world. But this isn't just a story about oil. Electric vehicle drivers aren't concerned about where the charge in their batteries comes from either. Nor will you worry whether the light will turn on the next time you flick the switch. And that's the way it should be if we plan our energy systems appropriately. Back at home, I researched the chemon in greater detail. In September 1978, the chemon had again been hired to mitigate an energy security deficiency. This time, the tanker found herself in trouble in the Mediterranean Sea, off the coast of Lebanon, where war had broken out. Beirut was cut off from oil supplies and needed the vital commodity, similar to Montreal five years earlier. Only this mission was dangerous. It had to skirt warships and smuggle oil into the needy country. Not surprisingly, the tanker was seized and her crew arrested. Released soon after, the crew its ship enjoyed only short-lived freedom. Ensnared in continuing Middle Eastern conflict, the Kimon was sunk by rockets before the calendar turned to 1979. In times of peace, we tend to discount the value of energy and take our sources of supply for granted. But during conflict, energy is often the first point of political leverage. And in extreme cases of military intervention, we pay the price with scarcity, hardship, and potentially even loss of life. Societies that learn to prioritize energy security when it's not an issue will never have to think about it when it becomes an issue.
2: Thanks for listening. For more on this story, visit energyfile.org longway. That's energy, P-H-I-L-E, dot org slash longway. Long Way Around was written by me and edited by Laurie Burwash, with audio production by Bo Sheminsky at Ear Candy and voices by Sherry McMaster, Kurt McKinstry, and Roger Giesbrecht.
1: We hope you enjoyed the story. If you like this story and you'd like to see more stories, visit energyfile.org. We'll put a link in the show notes and rate us on the app that you listen to.
0: For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.